Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Happy August. Well, happy second week of August. Summer fun. Summer fun. I think I think you might be building up expectations about what follows in a sort of slightly dangerous way. No, absolutely not. It's, it's Reasons to be Cheerful summer season, the end of the pier, fun. Have you ever done an end of the pier show? No, but I'd be up for it. I know that you're uh, desperate to get back in front of a live audience again. We could do uh, a tour of seaside towns. What do you think we'd be like at the end of the pier? I don't know, somewhere between Little and Large and Cannon and Ball. Just to pick two double acts off the top of my head. Hale and Pace. Hale and Pace, yes. Uh, The Two Ronnies. Chuckle Brothers. I, I now realise what you're doing. It's name name a double act. Yeah, I don't think all of none of which we're like really. Maybe a little like C3PO and R2D2. Which one am I then? I'll leave that to our listeners to decide. Although I think mm. it's fairly obvious which roles we occupy. I'm C3PO. Am I? I think so. Yes. Right. Okay. I'm I'm the little dumpy one. Oh, what about Marvin the paranoid android? <laughs> <laughs> do you remember Marvin the paranoid android from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? I, do, yeah, I don't think he had a. I don't think he had a um, a sort of pairing. Zaphod, I suppose. Zaphod Beeble Rocks, maybe. Yeah. We veered a long way off the subject. Should we have a course correction? Our only option here is a is a handbrake turn. What you're doing here is a very sm- you're shifting the energy from one to the other. So you're maintaining high energy, but yes. So uh, this. This August, we thought that the right thing to do was to talk about the climate crisis and in particular the lead up to the very important talks that will be taking place in Glasgow in November, uh, known as COP26, the Conference of the Parties, which is where the countries of the world gather to discuss what they're going to be doing about the climate crisis. And we've got four episodes basically coming up. Um, The first, the one today, 
uh, tries to set the context to the uh, climate crisis and indeed the cops um and then we'll get on in future episode to the science the politics and the and the, and the movements that are involved um in in trying to pressurize world leaders at the cop and, and indeed to pressurize world leaders to act on the cr- climate crisis but but we're starting today with the context and and i think it is you know i think it is a really we've got some really interesting well-informed uh guests who i hope will shed light on on what we're up against and and you know something which is quite impenetrable the cop as to what it's all about Listen, when I'm talking to people this summer, I want to sound like a serious-minded person who is across current affairs. I want, want to sound like I know what I'm talking about here when it, it comes to the COP. But obviously, I'm, I'm an idiot. So can you do me an idiot's guide to the COP? So the COP is the conference of the party. Yes, now this, take... is, this, this is the first thing I don't understand. So it's, it's, it's called the COP, but it is the United Nations Climate Change the United Nations Framework Frame, Convention on Framework climate, Convention climate. on so so why isn't why isn't it called UNFCOC then? <laughs> uh, that's not the thing to say at the party. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, particularly not if it's a party where people are sort of cop experts. Well, look, the UNFCCC is the framework, the convention, which then set up the Conference of the Parties, which is this annual meeting that takes place now forget about all of the sort of malarkey around it as joe biden might say um what 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 do you need to know you need to know that that paris was the most successful cop right because it it set a uh, it, the world there agreed a whole set of things but in particular that it would seek to limit global warming to 2 degrees and take action to try and keep global warming to 1.5 degrees uh, and that's 1.5 degrees centigrade. So that's a very, very Celsius in your in your language. So that's that's like Paris. Yeah, that's the first port of call at the party, right? But, but Paris was quite a long way into it. I mean, so so the Paris first, was quite a long way into it. The first one was so 95, then, so, but it was so COP yeah. one was 95. The reason it's called uh, COP 26 is it's not COP 21 because it's yeah. 2021. They, well, they, that's the, a that's a that's the sort of bit where you've had two glasses of wine trying to explain it to people at the party but you can definitely go to the first one being in berlin okay um and so one of the people we're going to be talking to today was there wow in berlin and has the t-shirt and has the t-shirt and has the, has the memorabilia so that's a sort of little tease um so berlin it's really important it pre- was preceded just to complicate things a bit further by the earth summit of 1992 oh, um yes. the earth summit in rio which you will have sort of vaguely remembered which established the unfccc and all of that now okay but let's because i think at this point you might well have lost your interlocutor at the party but assuming that you haven't lost them they'll be like they might be saying to you well okay that's very interesting jeff not uh but what what was what's glasgow all about and the key thing to realize about glasgow is it's about closing the gap between the high level ambitions of the world to keep global warming to 1.5 degrees centigrade or celsius and the individual pledges that countries have made which added up to something approaching three degrees of warming a review mechanism was built in to the paris agreement to say countries have to come back every five years and say well you know how do we, if you like, match the high-level ambitions we made with the ad aggregate of all the pledges made by countries? Now, that so, was so is the COP a little bit like the parents' evening, where you you go and uh, you go and see how you you're doing, and there's 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 pressure because this event is coming up to have made some change. 
Yes. So if you've got, we, it's quite important to be at the parents' evening. Right. But what thing I was going to say was that COP26 was due to be last year in Glasgow, but obviously because of the pandemic, it got postponed. I'm going to introduce something else. This is This is like when everybody's, almost everybody's left the party and there's sort of only one guest. No, no, that's not how I'm... I'm seeing it like the people are sat at my feet as I'm regaling them with this information. So when I first became a minister, Mm. um, uh, this was in the run-up to Copenhagen, the big one big cop was 1997. Kyoto, John Prescott was there. It was was an important agreement. In Kyoto, there was a um, division between so-called Annex 1 countries who were in Annex 1 of the agreement and non-Annex 1 countries. Annex 1 countries were developed countries who had to cut their emissions and non-Annex 1 countries were countries that were not necessarily going to cut their emissions but were going to take actions to sort of help tackle the climate challenge, recognising that developing countries, you know, were still on the development path and so on. Now, that division has been, um, is no longer there and that's probably a good thing because we need every country to be now cutting. In, a, in the world where you've got to get to net zero by you know, 2050 or so as a world, you need all countries. Now, developed countries have a responsibility to do more and so on, but you need all countries acting. But the reason I mention all that is because it was that suspicion between developing countries and developed countries, which is, if you like, the most difficult, uh, the crux of the of the sort of of the challenge of these cops. Which, you know, developed countries had this development path, high carbon, etc., 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 and now we're saying to developing countries, well, you can't really do it. We can't really develop in that way. We've got to develop in a zero carbon or low carbon way. That's the biggest challenge, I would say, of the whole thing. Uh, and that, and the whole thing is, you know, how the world tackles climate, the climate crisis. The big thing also to bear in mind is countries may set net zero targets for a long way into the future. But what really matters, and our listeners will know this, is that we're in the decisive decade now. So countries should really be judged on what they're going to do for 2030. That's That's the meat and potatoes of this so if you've never watched a cop before this is the this is the one to pay attention to now's the time to tune in and then you can go back and watch the previous 25 you're listening to reasons to be cheerful with ed Miliband and jeff lloyd so to begin our series of conversations about the climate crisis um, i'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Alice Bell, who is co-director of the climate charity Possible and is author of a book I would highly recommend. It's a book called Our Biggest Experiment, A History of the Climate Crisis. Alice, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So before we get into the detail of all this, um, and there's lots to talk about, why did you write the book? Why do you think it's important to understand the history of the climate crisis? When I first started getting really into climate change as an issue, as opposed to someone who just kind of had it as one of many issues that I was worried about, I did what most people do and I looked to the science and that gave me the core of my understanding of it. I mean, that's, that is the core of our understanding of the climate crisis is the science. But I still felt like I had loads of unanswered questions. I had questions about the science itself. Like who, who commissioned that research? Why did we even start looking at this in the first place? And so I felt like I had to go and read up on the history to, to get a fuller picture. And I felt once I had done that, I, I had a better understanding of the climate crisis. But also I just found all these exciting characters. It's just full of these amazing people who did odd things like put a bit of uh, carbon dioxide in a windowsill to see what 
would happen if the sunlight hit it and realised that, oh, carbon dioxide uh, collects a lot of heat. And that takes the, the windowsill, I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, takes us to Eunice Foote. She was studying the atmosphere a long time ago, back in 1856. Yes. So she she did this experiment where she put different gases um, on her windowsill to see what this, the rays of the sun would do to them. She was just interested in gases. She was a middle middle to upper class, you know, reasonably wealthy woman in America in living in New York State in the middle of the 19th century. And both her and her husband were very into science. And they both did science experiments at home. She discovered that carbon dioxide trapped a lot of heat. And we already knew the basics of what we'd now call the greenhouse effect, the idea that the, the Earth is sort of surrounded by a kind of blanket of, of gases that insulates it. And so she put the new information that she got together with that and said, just almost in passing in her paper, an atmosphere full of carbon dioxide would lead to a very hot uh, climate. And now we look back on this and we think, oh, my goodness, this is so visionary. And it's this sort of incredible story that a woman scientist in the 1850s would say this and no one listened to her. Uh, the truth of it is that I mean, people did kind of listen at the time, but no one, including Foote, really thought that this was a major discovery. And she got forgotten. And it's only in recent years that people have dug that paper up and discovered it. Why was she ignored? Was it because she was a woman? Was it because people just wanted to ignore all of the it was too early? Well, it's, I think part of it is that even herself, she didn't realise kind of the implications of it. I so see. it wouldn't be for several decades later until some Swedish scientists started to think, oh, maybe all these fossil fuels that we're burning is adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So this process that had previously been talked about theoretically could ha could actually happen. But even they thought it would be hundreds of years off. Now, we now know with the advantages of modern science that the burning of fossil fuels was was warming the earth, you know, before the time of Eunice Foote. But she had no way of knowing that at the time. We didn't really start to twig that till the middle of the 20th century. Another scientist, John Tyndall, a British scientist, said very similar things a bit later. And he was a professional scientist and he was a man. And he was remembered and often is credited for this discovery of carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas. And it's, so it's easy to look at this story and go, huh, a woman said something. And then three years later, a man said it and everyone listened to the man. Although there is some truth in that, it's not necessarily that clear. Uh, you know, he was famous for lots of other things. And so he's already in the history books and we already know to look at him and put his, his picture in textbooks. Now, back to sort of more recent times. How has the scientific awareness developed over time around global warming and, and when did the consensus start to form? So as I said we had these sort of ideas floating around in the 19th century and then in around about mid to late 1930s a engineer called Guy Callender who his day job was burning working out how to burn lots of fossil fuels to make electricity but in his in his evenings he liked to do temperature maths that was just what he did to relax along with cycling and gardening he liked to get a load of temperature data and do maths on it and he put together temperature records that the Smithsonian held um, for several decades, about four decades before before then. And he said, we have already warmed the earth by about a, a third of a degree global warming. And that he connected that to rising carbon dioxide levels. And so this thing that had previously been seen as like something that might happen in like 400 years, he was like, no, this is happening already. He was initially dismissed, but then after the war, there was a, a lot more money um, and resources, particularly in American science. There was a couple of other bits of, of new research that suggested people should look at this issue again. And people went back to it in the mid-50s. In terms of the consensus... Just before you go to the consensus, talk about Frank Capra. Frank Capra is famous for musicals, correct? Frank Capra musicals. So well, he made It's American... Um, it's not It's an American It's a Wonderful um, Life. 
uh, It's a Wonderful yeah. Life. Yes, he's most famous for that. He got into a little bit of a strop about with Hollywood after It's a Wonderful Life and kind of went off to do some television. And he he had a real interest in science. And so he wanted to make some amazing TV shows sponsored by uh, one of the big American uh, companies that relied on a lot of R&D to celebrate science and technology and inspire a new generation of, of people to be scientists. And he had these incredible lush uh, semi-fictional documentaries and one of them is about the weather and in it it includes a whole section about how because of of things that we're doing with our industry basically burning fossil fuels humans are warming the earth um, and it's there and this is 1958 and people often say oh, oh okay yeah well the scientists knew it in the 50s but oh, this didn't talk to the public well actually they did um, there's an also from around the same time there was a great bbc uh, special made in the late 50s and it this big special that was one of the most expensive tv shows that the bbc had ever done and it's fronted by prince philip and it again also talks about the glaciers melting and sea level rise and the sorts of statements about climate change that to me i think is something that's very 80s uh, but was there in the 50s and then talk to us about the 70s into the 80s and what what then happened so gradually, more and more scientists did work on it. There were still some scientists who didn't believe it, as is the nature of science. When you've got a new idea, it takes a while for it to kind of move its way around. And there was a big discussion about whether this trend towards global warming was the dominant trend and whether actually fossil fuels might also be causing global cooling by air pollution. Um, kind of scattering light because if the skies got darker because of air pollution, could they actually be cooling the earth? And right up until kind of the 70s, you see lots of fights between kind of what were known as the warmists and the coolists. Um, and the, t the phrase global warming was coined in 1975 in a paper which was establishing that no, it is global warming is the dominant trend. And so by the end of the 70s, sometimes people joke that um, there's not been any really seriously important climate science since the end of the 70s, because there was a kind of the basics of what we believe were sort of set there. Talk about James Hansen and his testimony to Congress, because Al Gore often talks about this as a big mo as a big moment. Yeah, it's um, it is a big moment. This it was it was a real summer of heat waves. This uh, is at the end of the 80s. Th this is in 1980. It was just a very, very hot summer. It was one of those hot summers. And Hansen was back to the Senate to, to talk about the temperatures. He'd been working in um, climate modelling for a long time. He was one of the senior scientists at NASA doing this. And he, he gave this testimony. And what's really important about it was that he very unflinchingly said, climate change is already happening. This isn't something that might happen in the future. It's happening now and it's, it's time to stop waffling. In some ways... Guy Callender had kind of said that in 1938, but Guy Callender still thought that maybe global warming was a good thing, that it might be good for plants. You know, by the time that Hansen was saying it, he was clear it wasn't. It was dangerous and it was worrying. And he was also sort of, he was able to say it with a huge amount more confidence than Guy Callender would have been able to. There was, you know, he wasn't just one scientist talking alone. He was one of many, many. He was reflecting what we, we might now call a, a kind of scientific consensus on the topic. And it was the first time it really climate change made a splash in terms of the news. It wasn't a secret, but it was the first time it made a kind of TV splash. Now, this scientific truth doesn't sort of exist in a vacuum, and your book makes that very clear. I'd like to talk about two different sort of forces, if you like, uh, that sort of kind of could have been mobilised or were mobilised in different ways in this. First of all, let's talk about the fossil fuel industry, because they are aware early on, because they're doing their own research and scientific discovery about this. It's pretty clear, isn't it? 
it's not coincidental that sort of uncertainty gets thrown up. It's a it's a political strategy, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so I mean, one of the the things that I think it's important that everybody appreciates, and it's been written about before by lots of lots of people, particularly it's a fantastic book called Merchants of Doubt by uh, by Naomi Orist and Eric Conway, um, is the fact that you know, we might well have just in the sort of 80s, it maybe took us longer than it needed to in terms of taking action on climate change. But with this big testimony from Hansen and people like Thatcher giving, gave several speeches in the late 80s, kind of calling for climate action, we were starting to move towards having a global treaty on the topic. We're getting ready for the big Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio. We were building institutions like the IPCC, groups of scientists were getting really organised together like that. And the oil industry got worried. They were like, oh, whoops, <laughs> we've got a real threat to our business here. And they strategically decided to try and do whatever they could to delay it. And they took a trick out of the tobacco industry's playbook. It was a PR strategy to te- applied by the tobacco industry in the 50s to fight uh, against the link between smoking and cancer, which was to just sow the seeds of doubt. So this kind of natural scepticism that exists in science anyway, with some people having different ideas or thinking it's more important to look at something else or going, oh, what about cooling? These are all questions that it's important that scientists have and make they took that and they emphasized it and blew them out of all proportions so it could cause as much delay as possible and i think we although we are seeing kind of ideas of climate skepticism seem pretty old hat these days we can still see forces of delay happening and we can still see them uh, see the oil industry's pr wing really thinking about how they can most forcefully delay action as long as possible and i think we probably would have had more action um, than we have now if it hadn't been for that then the environmental movement in that context, I think look, we, we all love the environmental movement, but I think implicitly or explicitly really in your book, you basically say, look, the environmental movement was pretty slow to put this front and centre, that that for the most part, it had its specific environmental campaigns, not climate until the sort of really the turn of the millennium. I don't know if this is partly just me being a bit uh, defensive because I'm a a climate campaigner is my day job and I didn't want to get, I didn't want to feel like I was letting us us off the hook. (laughs) Maybe I went for them harder than I should have because they're my friends and sort of me. But I I do think they were a little bit late. The context around that is that they were struggling against the might of the oil industry. And also that there were a lot of other environmental concerns and environmental battles that they were fighting. I understand why uh, the kind of explicit climate movement didn't happen until a bit later. But it was a bit late. And I think there might also be some explanations in, I don't, I don't know whether who's, I don't know it's necessarily a fault on one side or the other, but I think that in some areas of ecology, the green movement and the scientific community had very good links. The green movement has always been very much of the scientific community and part of the scientific community, but then can have quite a difficult relationship with it at times too. And the, the groups of people who were talking about climate change tended to be the sorts of scientists that didn't talk to green activists, who didn't feel like they were their sort of people. They were more the sorts of people who were more comfortable talking to military uh, funders and the government, not activists, which is slightly different from some other areas of the green movement. I think this has changed a lot over time, but there, you know, there was a different dynamic. We, we obviously want to, f- we want to focus on this COP, uh, the conference of the parties, we've obviously got COP26 in Glasgow um, this year. Talk to us then about the history of internationally coordinated action on the climate crisis and how the first UN processes came about. 
We were the first sort of semi-international conference on it in 1961. It's the first conference on it and people came from different parts of the world to talk about it. But you didn't really get um, a huge amount of international work on it till the late 70s, early 80s. So you had scientific conferences initially that some politicians were invited to, and then you'd have more political ones that scientists were invited to. And people realised this was really valuable and there was going to be a need to have international political conversations about this topic, that this was a topic that you couldn't just leave to nation states alone, but we needed cooperation on. People were talking about the need for a, a kind of a, some kind of global treaty on carbon dioxide emissions, if nothing else. Um, In 1992, they had this agreement. Um, They set up a treaty called the UNFCCC, the UN Framework uh, for Climate Change. And it was, it's a treaty in itself, which is uh, the signatories are the parties that we have in our Conference of the Parties. It's UN stuff is so full of these acronyms, uh, but that's where we get our Conference of the Parties. They're signatories of this. But it's also, a, it, they agreed, they worked out that we weren't going to just sign a treaty and that would be it. They knew that this was going to take years of discussion and it was going to take ongoing work. So it's a whole framework for having a conversation. It's not just a bit of paper, but a whole institution. And this institution runs conferences every year and they've happened um, kind of since the middle of the 90s. Your listeners probably remember the really big ones like Kyoto or Copenhagen or Paris. I was very struck by a quote you had uh, in your book. And the quote is, is this, and it's from a not quite a teenage girl. And she said, losing my future is not like losing an election or a few points on the stock market. Did you have to worry of these things when you were my age? If you don't know how to fix it, please stop breaking it. And you you listen to those words, you think, okay, that's Greta Thunberg. And then you think, well, no, it isn't actually. It's Seven Cullis Suzuki, who is a 12-year-old who speaks at the 1992 Earth Summit, at which point you sort of put your head in your hands and think, you know... That's thirty yeah. years ago. I know that that little girl is is now not a little girl, <laughs> and it's, she's just a bit older than me. I remember that quite vividly. I was I remember being at school, and our teachers were like, "There's this big important summit, and everyone's talking about how it's important for the children." Because there's always rhetoric about how we must save the world for the children. And we've got this child speaker ad and they made us watch that on television. And we had the Blue Peter Green book. There was a special green badge was that was launched at the time. You know, these things were, were told, we were told that, and there was Captain Planet. He's a hero. He's going to get pollution down to zero. And this is old stuff now. This is really retro. Uh, and it, we didn't do it partly because of things like the climate skeptics, but I think also because there was a sense that it was the future. And I think we allowed us, ourselves to think for too long that climate change is a future issue rather than appreciating that it that you know, futures have a habit of catching up with us. Yeah. <laughs> Time happens, you know, it speeds up. Um, and that, that future that she talked about in 1992 is now a past. And as you completed this book and, and talking about this book, what do you think are the big lessons we need to learn from history as we kind of look forward and, and try and get to grips with this with the climate crisis in this decisive decade? I'd say a few things. One is that uh, we didn't just choose to burn fossil fuels. We chose to go around building the fossil fuel industry or let it being built in a particular way. And actually, I'd say the oil industry were, were full of some really awful people doing some awful things before they got interested in climate change. So you know, people put a lot of attention on this moment in, in the 80s where they invested in climate skepticism. Rightly, we should put a lot of attention on that. But it wasn't the first time they'd been the evil. You know, If we had constructed the oil industry in a different way, if different people had been running it, maybe they would have reacted to climate change in a different way. 
But also the other thing I think I take from it is that there's a lot in this history that we should be proud of and happy about. Uh, and there was a lot of time I spent writing the book thinking, this is just so depressing. These horrible people doing terrible things or doing stuff and not realising the consequences. But there were also lots of times where I thought, oh, wow, people did amazing things. One way of looking at this is to think it's all been so late. We've taken so long. We should have done it earlier. Like, you know, looking at the environmental movement going, no, you should have been running climate campaigns from the 60s. Well, actually, it's kind of remarkable that we did it as early as we have done. And we could very easily be sitting around just looking at the weather thinking, oh, weather's a bit odd again, and not be armed with any of this knowledge. So I, I also think there's something to be taken from it in terms of feeling... Yeah, Cubans are pretty awful people, but they're pretty amazing too. And we've got the capacity to do amazing things. Well, look, that is you, you're you're on brand, Alice. That is a good. Um, that is definitely a good note to end on. Uh, the book is our biggest experiment: a history of the climate crisis. Alice Bell, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now let's talk to a, a good friend of mine, climate lawyer, activist, advisor to the Climate Vulnerable Forum, somebody who's influenced a lot of what I've done. In fact, I basically do what she tells me. Uh, that's Fahana uh, Yamin. Thank you so much for joining us, Fahana. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for asking me back. I say that as sort of it, partly, in, it sounds like it's in jest, but it isn't really, because it was Fahana who said to me outside the school gates in uh I think it was 2014 or 2015, you've got to make net zero your big mission before mo anyone else was talking about net zero. And I think we first met Fahana in the ashes of Copenhagen, on the floor of Copenhagen as it was descending into kale. Yes, absolutely. That's right, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. And um, Gordon Brown was one of the leaders um, and Great Britain was one of the countries, the UK was one of the countries that tried to work with the vulnerables at that time, and I was working with the Maldives president, um, and we came together to try and rescue the good bits. And there were good bits, and most of them were then formalized, you know, in the Paris Agreement later. And that's where this 1.5 target was put forward. So, yeah, I felt like you were a real friend then. Well, th thank you, Fana. Um, just let's start there then. 
talk to us about your involvement in cops. Where, where was the first cop you went to? I went to the first cop in 1995, cop one. And wow. It was wow. In 1995. And um, my daughter, who had been born in September, was only about seven months old. And it was presided, the presidency of the COP was Germany. Do you know who the president was? It was Angela Merkel. Do you have any mementos from COP1? Oh, my God, I'm going to get it out right now. I can show you. Okay. Yeah, go on. I mean, look, honestly, this is like this is how to impress people at a party, a memento from COP1. I've got memorabilia. I'm hoping one day it will become really famous. It will. The solar-powered radio. Can you see? And that's the official logo of you know, cop oh, one. Wow. And it still works. It folds out. Honestly, still, look, this is, you know, how many, 26 years old, and it still works. German engineering. And um, yeah, it's it, great. It, it like works on batteries. It works on solar power. So they were thinking way ahead, you know. And have you got memorabilia from every cop since then? You've got a cupboard full I've, of... I've got, yeah, memorabilia from all of them. Um, I missed two. I missed the one in India. Because um, I'd had a baby, and I missed the one in Bali, which was baby number four. So I decided not to go to those cops. Yes, it's like the Hard Rock Cafe of cops. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. so there's a few exactly. men who've gone to every single one, but they haven't had four babies along the way. And I feel like, you know, that, that doesn't even count. What What are your reflections? I don't know this is a kind of broad question, but what are your reflections on the achievements of these cops and the frustrations of these cops oh i think we would definitely be at a four degree world you know um and we would be staring possibly at unchecked emissions if the un negotiations hadn't started uh, you know 30 years ago so they've made an enormous difference every year you know for the last 10 years actually governments have drawn up plans they have tried to regulate greenhouse gases they have done vast amounts of education. They have tried to bring on ever more diverse constituencies into action. And that process has been going on from the early days. And, you know, they've done that against the backdrop of the world economy completely changing, you know, to a fully globalised economy. And then, you know, three major recessions, actually. You know, the multilateral regime has survived these great global recessions Back in the early 90s, when Kyoto itself was being negotiated, the East Asian economies were tanking. Kyoto was 1997, just for our listeners, yeah. And I've got, I've got all my, you know, they won't show on the podcast, which is a real shame, you know. But here's my Kyoto protocol that was printed with a typo. <laughs> this one, I think this one will be priceless. Uh, they spelled Kyoto, Kyoto wrong. wrong. Can you imagine? But the point is that actually then we have this massive recession, you know, with the global financial meltdown and we're still at the tail end of austerity and that's survived. And then we've survived and seen off, you know, this um, hugely well-funded campaign by industry to obfuscate, confuse the science and to delay action. So actually we've come through that. And I'm pointing these out because, you know, last time we met, you said, why are you so cheerful? And it's because... Actually, there are reasons to be cheerful. I mean, I think, I think what's so interesting about this is that for all its frustrations, you, you feel that the cops have produced some positives. Fahana Yamin, thank you so much for joining us. 
We will hear more from Fahana in the coming weeks. And next, we are talking to Pete Betts, who worked with Ed at the COP summit in Copenhagen and was the UK and EU's chief climate negotiator for a number of years. Pete, let's let's kind of start with brass tacks. Um, if you're on a train and you get talking to somebody and you mention that you've been a lead negotiator at, at COP summits and then they say, oh, t- tell me about that. What's that like? How, how do you describe the job? What is that role? It's hard to describe a COP. A COP is a, is a vast annual gathering. It's the biggest multilateral process, 200 countries. The COPs happen over two weeks and, you know, they get there and negotiators, ministers, businesses, civil society, because it also now is a kind of trade fair as well. So you've often got 30 or 40,000 people milling around for two weeks. Nobody has got the overview of everything that's going on. I mean, your job as a negotiator is to try, I mean, when I was working for the UK and for the EU, my job was always to try and get, you know, as ambitious outcome as I could for for the climate. When you go to these cops, Pete, what's what's your emotion? Is it um, dread, uh, enjoyment, fatigue, all of those? Uh, yeah, all of those. When I was a negotiator, I'm no longer a negotiator, certainly all of those. I mean, it is it is a slog. And I, I certainly, when, when I first went to a cop, you know, I was a little bit like an eight-year-old in football, you know, chasing the ball all over the park, wherever it was. And, uh, you know, by the time it was halfway through, I was utterly shattered. It is a grim effort of endurance. You're doing 16-hour days for two weeks, and sometimes you do all-nighters, and you have to pace yourself. So you've got to make sure you're, you've got to make sure you know what you want, but also you've got to make sure you're standing at the end when others might fall by the wayside. Pete, can I ask, which, what was the first COP you ever attended? Uh, COP4 in um, Buenos Aires was the first in 1998, was the first one I attended. Which has been your favourite COP? Uh, in terms of outcome, I think the EU made a determinant impact probably at COP17 in, in Durban into 2011, where, you know, essentially the, the EU were pushing US, China and India that we wanted the outcome for the upcoming treaty that would be in Paris to be a legally binding treaty. And that was um, being resisted strongly by US, China and India. And we basically held firm with a lot of vulnerable countries and managed to, one by one, face them down. So that was probably the one where we made the most impact. But of course, Paris was also a big cop because we that's where we landed the final deal. And... I guess as an outsider to all this, I, I sometimes wonder if all the hard work goes on before the uh, the, the summit, and then uh, a lot of what is going on there is the rubber stamping and the handshaking, the and the photo opportunities. Like, how much actually happens there at a COP summit? You know, when you don't do the prep well, you end up with Copenhagen, where we hadn't really uh, worked out where the landing grounds could be, and um, as a result. You know there were mismatched expectations, and it and it didn't it didn't reach an agreement. Um, Paris was the opposite. We'd done an awful lot of prep. We knew where the landing ground is. You still had to get there, and there was still a room for maneuver. But an awful lot of the ground had been cleared. Glasgow is a very different cop in that the the formal agenda to be negotiated is it's quite long, but it's quite technical or detailed, and the really big issues are around how you get countries to raise their ambition on their emission reduction pledges 
and how you deliver finance and support to developing countries. And an awful lot of the action on those issues will have been decided well before the COP. And can you talk to us a bit about, I mean, th- those are the issues, but why why is it such a crucial one? There's uh, a, a lot of weight placed on th- this COP. Why, why is this perhaps the most important one, really, since the Paris Agreement? So, so Paris it was a treaty. It, we, it was a, provided a treaty framework, so that was a very big step forward. But it also um, got commitments from pretty well all the world's big economies to reduce their emissions. And those were significant, but they weren't remotely enough to put the world on track by the year 2030 for, for keeping the, the temperature increase below 1.5 or even 2 degrees. So we all acknowledged that at the time, the world acknowledged that. And Paris created this five-year cycle whereby every five years, countries were expected to ratchet up the ambition of their of their emission reduction commitments. And Glasgow will be the first time where that five-year ratchet is applied. So that will really test whether that ratchet really works. Well, look, Pete Betts, thank you so much for joining us. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Thank you for listening to the first of our COP specials. Hopefully that has given you an introduction to how we got to where we are on the climate crisis, as well as some background on the COP. Next week, we are talking about the stakes at COP26. We're speaking to a climate scientist and two guests from countries particularly vulnerable to the effects of the climate crisis about the urgency of taking ambitious action on it now. We should thank our guests, Alice Bell, Fahana Yamin and Pete Betts. And we will be hearing more from Fahana and Pete later on this month. It's worth mentioning that we put out a call for suggestions for these episodes of who we should talk to. And one of our listeners, Izzy Stopford, emailed in to point us towards John Lang, who just happens to be her fiancé. Now, John works for the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, and he is on a mission to make climate change radically accessible. And you must go and look at these. They're brilliant. He's created some really clear infographics which will guide you through the COPs and the climate crisis more widely. Honestly, I can't stress enough how good these are. It really brings it to life. Um, So we will put a link to John's infographics and to other background information on this episode on our website. Emma Corsham produces our podcast. Thank you to Emma for getting it sounding good and putting it all together. Joel Pierce does all the research and finds all the guests. Joel is supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed our music. James Deacon made our eye dents and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. I've been Jeff Lloyd. And this is your guide to COP26 brought to you by Reasons to be Cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.